two things probably helped mold my views and then um, just future looking goals as well kept me going. So the first two things, I grew up in a family where, you know, I don't know if cheap is the correct word. My dad might joke that he's really cheap, uh, but we were quite frugal, never really lavishly spending. So I got that idea of, you know, not overspending and trying to keep and save my money, but I was never really sure what I wanted to do with it. The other thing, I never really enjoyed school. And I remember right when I got to work, um, the first week was just so incredibly boring. I just knew I needed to do something outside of work and there was something else. And luckily I started reading some books about real estate and I kind of realized, you know, this, this is something that could help change my life, have a different trajectory and not just work a nine to five forever. And then really my driving factor is why I still want to keep doing everything. You know, right now still fairly young, don't have a family, but my real goal is to just be a stay-at-home dad, but have no one really worry about finances, as well as hang out with my parents before they're too old and take some fun trips. So, You found the Real Estate Law Podcast. Because real estate is more than just pretty pictures, and law goes well beyond the paperwork and courtroom arguments. If you're a real estate professional or looking to build real estate expertise, then welcome to the conversation and discover more at realestatelawpodcast.com. All right, we got another Real Estate Law Podcast right here. Jason Muth with Rory Gill. Rory, we have an old friend of ours who's on the podcast that I haven't spoken with in, in quite some time, but I've been following him for many, many years online. He's been on the Bigger Pockets. The Bigger Pockets Money podcast, I think is what I was just told. But I do remember listening to that podcast just at the house next door. We're in one of our short-term rentals right now. And our original short-term rental uh, during the pandemic became our home. And I remember listening to a lot of content. And suddenly Avery Harold Ron was on the podcast. And I was like, Avery, I know Avery. We've been to his meetups in Everett. We brought Cecily to one of our his meetups. Like, Rory, do you remember that? Like back when we had a baby and we tried to figure out how we could still participate in the real estate community having a baby? Well, it does feel like a lifetime ago that that was the primary concern, but no, I'm yeah. very excited for today's conversation because um, Avery has a real story and a trajectory here that kind of cuts across the different angles um, in the real estate world and the fire world. So I'm really excited for today's conversation. Yeah, and Avery has moved beyond just being a real estate investor. He's you know has invested in a number of asset classes himself, uh, and. He is a real estate and financial coach, so he has a number of students who he works with. Uh, he produces a lot of great content online. Uh, as a listener to this podcast, you actually might be very familiar with Avery, but without further ado, we should introduce Avery Heilbron to all of you. So welcome, Avery. Yeah, thanks for the introduction. Really happy to be here. Hopefully we have a fun conversation and something to learn a thing or two. Yeah. Now, I said your name like two or three times right there, and I know I pronounced it correctly offline, but did I screw it up during my intro? No, that, that was really good. Most people screwed up pretty bad, so I'm, I'm impressed. Yeah. Nobody can say Buth. I mean, my last name is just not a fun, pleasing one to see or say, but I get it, how difficult it is. So Avery, we met Avery back in like 2018 or 2019 uh, in the Boston area. Avery was putting on a number of real estate meetups that were fantastic. Uh, there was this brewery, there still is a brewery in Everett called Night Shift, and I think, Avery, do you have properties in Everett? Is that why you did it there? Yeah, I live about a five-minute walk from that night shift brewery when I was starting it. And that's where I bought my first duplex. Um, and then the second property I purchased, uh, three families also in Everett. 
Yeah, Everett has really taken off even since you first invested there. Um, if you if you're listening to this, you're unfamiliar with the Boston area, uh, there is a casino there, the Encore Casino, and they're expanding their footprint. Uh, they're they're the latest city that has the rumors of the New England Revolution, the soccer team going into there. Uh, but every city, I think, in uh, Eastern Massachusetts has had that rumor. So we'll see where they actually end up. Uh, but that certainly wouldn't hurt your property values, Avery, would it? No, that would be really awesome. Um, might be a good reason to move back there. Yeah, and Avery's a good, he's a big soccer guy too. Like, were you recruited or you played semi-pro? Uh, I, semi-pro might be generous. I played in college, whatever you want to call that. Okay, well, it's all about perspectives. But versus Rory, our soccer skills, I think that Avery was definitely professional. So we'll just call, we'll just say that you were a pro in you know a different world. Um, so, all right. So, so you're living where now? Right now I live in Durham, North Carolina. Okay. Yes. What a great city. I've been there. Um, very smart people are in Durham, North Carolina. Um, do you have a connection to Duke or any of the schools down there? Yeah. So that was the real reason I moved down here back in 2021. My girlfriend is doing her PhD in genetics and genomics. And don't ask me what that means, but, um, that's, that's why we moved here. Yeah. I will claim that I was a biology major many, many years ago, and I actually got an A in genetics back when I took that class, and I did not get too many A's in my major, so I was super proud of that. So maybe she and I can have a conversation someday, and I could just kind of nod along as if I know what she's talking about. What's the world of real estate like in North Carolina versus here in the Northeast that we know so familiar? Yeah, so in the Northeast, a big way a lot of people start is through house hacking, similar to what I did with the small multi, live in one unit, rent out the other. I mean, I think that's a really awesome strategy to get in. In the Southeast and South, a little bit less of those small multifamilies that you see scattered all throughout the East Coast and Northeast. So just a little bit less of that going on. And then the population growth, especially here in a lot of these cities, is super high. So appreciation has been pretty crazy and just general market of home buyers, people who have more money and see the home prices here is less than in, say, Boston. So you're competing against folks like that since there is a little bit less small multi-stock and more just single-family housing that people are looking to buy. So there's there's a little bit more competition and then also people from far away who are maybe Boston-based investors who want to buy in some of these markets too. So just all of that, there's a little bit more competition in general. Mm-hmm. Hey, Rory, Avery's in one of those markets that has a lot of out-of-market investing. You know, we hear it a lot, but, you know, we don't see it a ton in the Northeast besides people international investing in the Boston area, right? That seems fair to me. I mean, people who often invest in the Northeast live here or have some connection here, and that's why they get interested in it in the first place, because it's not the most attractive market if you're certainly up after cash flow. It never really has been. There are other advantages to invest in markets like this. Um, other strategies, but this really isn't the center of the cash flow world. Yeah, and you know we're we talk a lot about short term rentals on this podcast as well because uh, that's the world that we're living in now. Avery has uh, has um, moved into that space as well, so I'd love to hear more about the short term rentals that you're doing. Uh, but what I love about short term rentals is people just don't talk about the Northeast unless you're here in the Northeast because it's not one of those sexy, super familiar markets that everybody is, you know, flocking to like Joshua Tree or, um, you know, the Smoky Mountains or Austin, Texas or Florida. It's just, you know, it's slow and steady. It works out great for us, for the people who want to be invested in the market. And, it, you know, we kind of don't want the attention of all this 
competition of all the money from out of the market. How, Avery, you've invested in real estate since you moved to Durham. How has that changed your strategy with what you are doing now and going forward in terms of, um, you know, looking for cash flowing properties, looking for appreciating properties, knowing the level of competition you're going to have when you're acquiring another property? Yeah. So as I mentioned, when I was in Boston, I did the whole house hack thing, three and a half percent down FHA loan made a lot of sense in that area because the down payment was a lot less than uh, what you need for a conventional investment loan. I've tried to move away from that a little bit just because I don't want to move all the time uh, was one of the main reasons. But at first I knew I could have utilized the second home loan to do the whole Airbnb thing um, and do the 10% down. So that was what was attractive to me. I do notice in this area specifically, or North Carolina and some of these markets that short-term rentals do seem to be quite popular and do a little bit better just because the cash flow on a single family house long-term rental might be pretty minimal. So I just wanted to be able to capture some of that short-term rental market. And also it's pretty fun to decorate a house, do some of the designs and things. And my girlfriend's quite good at it. I wouldn't take any credit for that. So that's been enjoyable for us too. And then beside that, I have been trying to partner with other people for some of the small multi stuff or getting into some of the smaller commercial multifamily game. So those have kind of been the two strategies since I've been down here. You are pretty handy, though. I, I saw that you built a bench or something like that, right? <laughs> I'm decently handy. I'm not too detail-oriented, so some of the the more fine things don't look that great. Um, and I've, I've tried to do a little bit less handiwork just because... If you're a DIY weekend warrior, it, it does take quite a bit of time. So the first project that I did when I paid contractors to do everything, I, I quite enjoyed that. Yeah. Sit back and, you know, find some professionals that could do it. Mm -hmm. uh, R Rory and I know all about DIY and being weekend warriors. That's That's been our life for, what, six years now? Yeah. I mean, it slowly creeps up on you when you have your first place. It's kind of a fun, exciting project and you do that on the weekend and then... You have two and then you have three and then that's devouring all of your free time out of your nine to five. And then you hit the point where you have to really actually ask yourself, is it worth my time, um, you know, the time value of money and, and hiring out other people? But I certainly don't regret the work, the DIY work, because that really informed everything else we did. Now we know what goes into all these projects that we're hiring out. Yeah, I think yeah. that's extremely valuable, I will say, just so you can understand construction, because even when going through these projects and fact-checking almost the contractor work or make sure they're not cutting corners has been really valuable. Yeah. You know, Avery has a great YouTube channel and a lot of amazing content on Instagram. You're on TikTok too, even though I'm not really on TikTok. So I'm just going to say Instagram, but I, I imagine it's similar content. But it, there was a lot of DIY content. I remember from the early years of you putting things out, um, you could tell how much time you were putting into your properties and how you were documenting the work you were doing and, you know, to echo what Rory said, there's a lot of pride in ownership or authorship or whatever the term would be if we're the ones physically putting the work in. Um, and I know that you've done a lot of that work yourself. And yeah, it, it, it allows you to have that conversation with the contractor where you kind of either halfway know what they're talking about or you actually know exactly what they're talking about. Yeah, I totally agree. Just speaking the same language is, is really valuable too. Yeah. So, all right. So you have... How many how many properties in the Boston area? You have three, is that right? Uh, just the two in the Boston area, five units in Everett. The five units in Everett. And then you, you have a, a short-term rental or a second one in North Carolina? So I have two short-term rentals down here and then a four-unit pretty close to me in Durham. 
And then I, I live in my single family house, which I'm not going to call a rental. I have a garage that I'm about to close on a HELOC and hopefully turn that into an apartment pretty soon too. Yeah. I think, you know, you're in the position, you're in your 20s, right? Like late 20s, mid 20s? Yeah. 28. Late 20s. If you were 27, I could say mid 20s, but you know, <laughs> the way I define it is it's in thirds, except when you're in the later part, then it's in half. So you're the later 20s. But you've done everything right throughout your 20s. And uh, perhaps this is what you're coaching your students and the people that are coming to you for financial advice are learning. And, you know, I look back and see all the people in their early and mid 20s that are kind of on the same path that you're on. And, you know, if they have the patience, they'll be in the position that you're in before they know it, you know, just kind of having a trail of properties. And, you know, we did it a little bit later in life. And when I was in my late 20s, I never quite understood how, how people did what you've done. Where did you get this sensibility and, and, and mindset from? Is this something that came out of your family or were friends of yours doing this? Or what really sparked your interest in creating the, the portfolio that you have right now? So two things probably helped mold my views and then um, just future looking goals as well it kept me going. So the first two things, I grew up in a family where you know, I don't know if cheap is the correct word. My dad might joke that he's really cheap, uh, but we were quite frugal, never really lavishly spending. So I got that idea of, you know, not overspending and trying to keep and save my money, but I was never really sure what I wanted to do with it. The other thing, I never really enjoyed school. And I remember right when I got to work, um, the first week was just so incredibly boring. I just knew I needed to do something outside of work and there was something else. And luckily I started reading some books about real estate and I kind of realized, you know, this, this is something that could help change my life, have a different trajectory and not just work a nine to five forever. And then really my driving factor is why I still want to keep doing everything. You know, right now still fairly young, don't have a family, but my real goal is to just be a stay at home dad, but have no one really worry about finances as well as hang out with my parents before they're too old and, and take some fun trips. So, Yeah, it's good to kind of assess those big components of our lives and realize that, you know, time is not limitless and our parents are older. And if we have young children, you know, you don't want to miss those years as well. And being able to set yourself up so you're able to spend more time with those folks is something that we all kind of strive to do. So did you move to Boston or the Boston area right after college? Yeah, so I was at school in the main area, um, and most people who got a job, it was in Boston. So that was my first job out of school, insurance company, um, right outside of the city. Yeah. And so then around that time is when you probably started to do the investigation of financial freedom and real estate investing. And, you know, did you start attending real estate meetups back around that time? Yeah, I um, I read that first book, and then it led me on to Bigger Pockets and the podcast and all that, and you kind of go down the rabbit hole. And, and one of the big things that everyone always spoke about was networking and, and going to meetups. So I just tried to go to as many as possible and met a lot of great people, and it helped a lot. And it still is something I try to do a lot today because as cheesy as it was, and I think you guys maybe still have the meetup, not sure, name the meetup network to grow your net worth. Uh, and I think it's still extremely true. There's always people who can help you or you can help and people that you can get together with to do great things. Yeah, I mean, that that does hold true. We did grab that meetup group when you left it and we still have it and we're not sure what to do with it right now because we moved ourselves as well. We did a couple meetups and then the pandemic kind of reared its 
ugly head again. So we just, you know, said, let's just put this on the back burner for now. But I totally agree. I mean, you meet amazing people at meetups. You do deals with people. You meet, you know, everyone in every category, whether it's a uh, mortgage broker, another real estate agent, someone that's a developer, someone you can learn from. You know, Rory, you've been to a lot of these as well. You've found agents at these, right? Absolutely. And this, the, like, the range of people there too. And that for the newbies, it's not just about, for the newbies, they actually offer kind of a new energy and kind of inspiration when they go to these meetups because they're the ones that are most willing to ask the questions that other people might be afraid to ask or, you know, just don't want to put themselves out there. So these events are great. And within the real estate community, just how open people are and how um, helpful people are um, to each other. It's just like such an inspiration and coming from the legal world where it's a little bit different. It was very refreshing when I started attending a lot of these meetups in the, you know, in the Boston area. Yeah. You know, I also find people, because when you were doing this, Avery, you were in your early to mid twenties and, you know, a lot of people are looking for that community after college of like-minded folks or people that they can socialize with, you know, like coming out of college and then working, it's like a, it's a shock to your system. You know, suddenly all your friends aren't right around you and you have to find kind of new cohorts. I found some real estate people interested in real estate on the younger side actually use it as a social network and then it kind of springboards into, you know, a, a great financial plan. I 100% agree with social network. I'm not the best, you know, interactor with people, any type of means. And when there's the common ground of real estate to talk about, super easy. So mm -hmm. makes it a lot better to meet new people that way. So it's super ironic that you said that because you are a content creator and you've created years worth of content on all those platforms. What made you want to get into that space? So it, it really was pretty simple, nothing crazy. At first, I did make a few of those DIY videos like you mentioned, uh, but I got so frustrated with it because it was already quite difficult to do the whole DIY. Filming it made everything take two to three times as long, so I just didn't have the patience for it. But I had done a couple of podcasts like these, and I found that there was always more I wanted to say or more I wanted to add on. But, you know, you only have the, the time that you have. So I figured, hey, YouTube would be a really good place to do it. And then about a year into the YouTube journey, I just noticed one of my friends started taking off quite a bit on the short form content on TikTok. He's still really successful today. And I just figured I'd give it a try, too, to help drive audience and, and get more followers. And, you know, social media also can create some income. Mm -hmm. What kind of feedback did you get early on when you started making these videos, like from your friends and family? I don't think friends and family ever watched it. My, I mean, Mia watches all of them, comments on all of them, so she's super supportive. But I don't think to this day either of my parents have watched a single video. So, really, yeah, I've told them about it. They know yeah. about it, but I, I think they don't really know. Sometimes I mention, uh, okay, hey, I have this many followers. They're like, oh, okay, cool. That's that's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> you have to have a lot of courage to put yourself out there like that too, right? Yeah. Talk about the kind of feedback that you get. I mean, you obviously have people that you coach now. So some people have really sub not just legitimately subscribed, but actually subscribed to what you're saying. How do you block out all of the distractors out there? Yeah, I think it's just talking about what you believe in is very important. I still sit down when I put my camera on or I have to hype myself up to, to get comfortable. I don't think it's something anyone or at least myself will ever be comfortable with. But I find the hate comments extremely funny. Um, it's cool to know that someone took time out of their day to say something hateful about me. Like that's that's interesting to me. 
Yeah, um, you know, on the flip side, if someone sends me an Instagram message or, or DMs me or comments saying, hey, I absolutely love your content, it's made me want to do X or it's changed my life in this way, that's obviously quite powerful and, and worth a lot too. We'll be right back. Every other real estate rental property deal analysis spreadsheet is wrong. The only spreadsheet that correctly analyzes your real estate deals taking into account reserves True cash flow, including depreciation and your true net equity on a property, is the world's greatest real estate deal analysis spreadsheet from the Real Estate Financial Planner. Download a free copy today and finally start analyzing your rental properties correctly. Go to refp.info forward slash free to download it today. Yeah, I'd have a hard time tuning it out, I think, you know, but, and I, I just did a couple of videos next door at one of our other short term rentals, um, just literally walking, walking people through a property, like how to use the thermostat, that kind of thing. Like I've wanted to do those types of videos and like, it is not easy. I mean, like the amount of takes I had to do just for a stupid video about how to use our turntable and our, our thermostat, I can only imagine what it's like, you know, with some of the content that you're putting out. Yeah. Um, a lot of takes. <laughs> yeah. Do you have a team of people who've helped with uh, your videos or are you doing all, all that yourself? Right now, YouTube probably has the most team. Uh, so I do have an editor and he creates the thumbnails. Lately, I started using him earlier this year. He does fantastic on the edits. Timing and his time management, not as fantastic, but I'm not too upset about it because uh, the videos look so good. But for the short form stuff, since it's pretty easy to just edit on your phone and I don't do anything too spectacular from an edit perspective uh that's pretty mm -hmm. easy especially early on though you had to add your own captions that looked nicer now tiktok's caption generator just does that all for you so i did kind of you know all the texting on my hand did hurt my wrist for the first six months because i was making three four videos a day but uh mm -hmm. not so much that anymore carpal tunnel syndrome that's a real mm -hmm. thing my mother oh, yeah. she's she's an artist i just want to ask about the motivation for putting together a lot of the content because in real estate investing, you could do a lot of this very quietly, um, out of sight from everybody else, almost anonymously. And to to kind of take the effort and the time, there's another job on top of doing the real estate investing. So I just wanted to ask, you know, why are you interested in, in putting together the content and why did you go down this road? Yeah. So interestingly enough, I don't love making content, but I really like the coaching and real estate coaching um, side of things. And I just saw it as a really easy way to market yourself because for the most part, it's pretty free. Obviously you need a Wi-Fi connection and the device to make the content, but um, it's just a really easy way to reach a mass audience. And so that was what I thought would be the best way. So I find it really rewarding, probably even more than when I buy a property, when someone I helped bought a property and you can see their life in a better trajectory. So mm -hmm. that, that's been the biggest driver for sure. Let's talk about your students. Did they all find you online? Yeah, everyone's been through Instagram. You know, I have a, a setup so that you can watch a video. I think a lot of people have a similar thing. You can watch a video, book a call, uh, and then I just talk to you for a half hour. Some people get starstruck, which I find hilarious still. Um, they're like, oh, I didn't expect you to be the one on the phone. I thought you'd have some type of closer or something. So uh, that, that's been fun too. <laughs> starstruck, yeah. I guess you never know when you're talking to someone online, like, are they real or are they not? I mean, like one, one thing I've appreciated about following your videos online, and I see a bunch of them, they just keep coming up, maybe I'm interacting with them or something, but they, like, 
you know, I, I know that you're real and I know that your investing is real. And, you know, if I'm going to start following other people online, I, I don't know what their background is. And that's the tricky part. Like, you don't know if they're full of it or if they are literally just copying somebody else or they actually do, you know, exactly what they say they are. Like, I'm, I'm a little lucky. I, I joined a short-term rental mastermind last year and it wasn't lucky because I, I met some of the coaches before I joined, but like everyone is who they say they are. Like, you know, and I wasn't sure of this because there are a lot of coaches online and there's a lot of people that want to take your money and some of them will give you good value. Some of them will give you great value. And I'm guessing there's some of them that are just going to take your money. I, I haven't found that yet, thankfully. Maybe you have some insight into some of the, you know, bad seeds out there, but, um, you know, if people are starstruck when they see you and then they start hearing your story and it's actually legitimate, what do, what do your students feel about learning from someone like yourself? You know, a young guy that actually has a track record of many years of, do, of doing this. Yeah, I think I think the biggest thing like most people want when they're getting into real estate is just having someone to lean on when you're feeling that uncertainty because... I think with every property or any transaction I've done, you're, there's always some sense of a little bit uneasiness, especially with the first one. Um, so I think they just see what I've done because you have the track record. And then also, I, you know, someone sends a message, I try to get back to them as soon as possible. Even though I know the dollar value is probably worth more than what people are paying, I want to make sure that it's the most valuable thing they could get possible. Um, so just try to always give as much information, be there, be available, give my opinion, talk through stuff. So I think that's probably what's, what's been most, most valuable. And most of the time they're already thinking like most people, like your gut usually knows what's going on, but just someone else who's done it before to say, okay, my gut is correct. I appreciate this, this other, um, uh, viewpoint. Yeah. You know, since we are the Real Estate Law Podcast, I should ask a little bit about maybe how you're set up legally, like with your entities. Like, do you have a number of companies that are your sole provider or, you know, how how do you have things kind of structured and what kind of advice do you give to people when they're starting down this road? So most of the people who are starting are trying to do a house hack. Um, so it's an owner-occupied loan, so you get to put it in your own name. So majority of people are there. That's how my first few investments were set up just because that was the name of the loan that I could get. The latter ones where I have partners and then some of my short, the newest short-term rental that I purchased with just a traditional conventional investment loan, those are LLC and separate LLCs and, um, you know, separate bank accounts. So I'm not doing any of the, the wrong things there. Yeah. Are you still getting loans as uh, like, you know, typical DTI loans, like through banks? The latest ones have been, yeah. I think um, my lender said I could probably do one more, but I'm probably going to, uh, maybe with the home equity line of credit that I just took out, I might go over the edge there. So probably going to have to start doing something a little bit differently. That's also why I've been looking to partner and just utilize other people's money or go in with someone, help my DTI if we needed that. So, Yeah, you're you're hitting that limit that we all hit. So if I, if I was still working W2, like I probably would have hit that limit with this, this one that we're in right now. Cause this was a construction loan that we did for this property. And man, those HELOCs are a great idea. Mm -hmm. Like they just are. Do you, have you had them before? No, I wish, and I don't wish I did it, uh, just because, you know, you lose some of your debt to income ratio or you add to the debt, even if you don't draw from it on some of my earlier properties, just cause they have such good equity. And it's been a little, there was one credit union in all of Massachusetts. I called like 40 
that said they would do it last year, but they didn't like my debt to income. Said they do it on investment property, that is. But on my primary home, it's much easier down here and got it from start to close. Closing next week took like three yeah. weeks. So. Rory, we have scaled up using HELOCs, right? I mean, yes, HELOCs are wonderful. And people who had a primary residence that they bought 10 years ago and during this run-up, um, this was the easiest way to get catalyst money, kind of no-strings-attached money that you can use to invest. The other thing I wanted to ask, though, with your transition moving out of state was not just the the finances and the money, but actually managing the property. It must have been one thing when you you know, lived in the building or just down the street from the building to be able to maintain these. How was the transition into letting other people manage the on-the-ground operations? So I technically still self-manage the ones in, in the Boston area and Everett. I would say that it's been pretty much no different than when I lived a mile or down the street from the other ones, just because I tried to set it up that way, where if there was an issue, I would call the vendor. Property turnover is fairly simple in the Boston area, just because you can have a broker do it, and the market is used to paying a broker fee. So that probably would have been the only really difficult piece if people who were out there trying to rent an apartment weren't okay with paying a broker fee. Obviously, if you pay that broker fee, you would eat a lot of cash flow as the landlord. So it hasn't been too different just to have lock boxes set up. One of my really good friends too is my handyman. So maybe that helps a lot. But yeah, I tried to run it that way before I even moved because I anticipated that we'd be moving a decent bit away. The most difficult things about being an investor in Massachusetts are the laws that really protect the tenants almost at all costs. Um, so what advice do you have to other landlords in a state like this about dealing with tenants, about choosing your tenants, um, and about hedging the legal risk with bad tenants? Right. Yeah. So there's, I mean, all the things you can do to help yourself legally and insurance, having liability insurance, all that good stuff. But before you even get to that point, like you just said, screening really good tenants, not being quick about that process, getting to know the people well, just having, I guess, a good gut feeling. Usually your gut feeling is pretty good when, with those things. And then also just from a general management perspective, I think every single one of my tenants, I have one who's moving. He's like, you're the best landlord ever. You have other units. I just, you know, I had a baby, so we're moving into a bigger place. So I think people just appreciate when you care and being a good landlord isn't difficult because the bar is quite low. So that helps too, because I think people don't want to trash your stuff because they know that you care and are being appreciative of, of all of your things. So those are probably my two things. And then in Massachusetts specifically, security deposits are kind of tricky. So make sure you open that new account. It's technically supposed to be in the tenant's name. And then you have to share the information too. I actually did have one tenant. I opened it in my name and then I didn't share them the information because they moved in and two days later they said, I actually really hate this. So I helped them, you know, find a new tenant and move out. And like 45 days had passed, so I hadn't shared them the security deposit information. And so I had to give them extra money back, penalties or something. So they'd just kind of be quiet, which you know, sucks, but there are people out there who know the laws pretty well. Yeah, I've heard from Rory, who has heard from lots of people that they definitely know the laws in Massachusetts. If you get a tenant that kind of knows how to work the system, they'll know that kind of stuff. And that might have been one of your first properties where we even knew that you had to handle the security deposit that way. So sometimes you just learn along the way, right? I mean, that's what we're all doing. Mm -hmm. 
I want to kind of move toward our final questions in a second, but I want to talk about short-term rentals. And one thing you just said right there is uh, the, the bar for being a good landlord is low. Uh, and that's why people like working with you. Have you used that information about being a good landlord in your short-term rental world? Because, you know, the difference in that world is that it's a hospitality business along with it being a real estate business. So what, what have you taken from the experience that you have into the short-term rental space and what are some things that you've learned along the way there? Yeah. So like you said, the short-term rental business is a hospitality business first and foremost. I think most people don't realize that when they first start out, you're not just a landlord who's letting people stay short-term. You have to create an experience, make people feel welcome. So I just assume everyone's paying me a million dollars, even if they're not. It's kind of how you have to treat people. I also like to add really good amenities, whether they're visible in the listing or things when people show up. So like at my, I have one on a golf course. I recently got custom made golf balls with a logo that is associated with the property that I give out to each guest, snacks and stuff like that. At the cabin that I have, I give out s'more kits and there's a fire pit. So I have firewood for everybody um, and fire starters. So you don't have to worry about getting those kind of things. So I think just adding the little plus ones and then good communication is really helpful. Just making the process smooth. One thing that I used to not do that I started doing was the day after people check in, sending them a message saying, hope everything's going well, which I thought at first would be kind of annoying and over communicating, but most of the feedback that I've gotten from people is positive. And also if there were any issues they're more likely to speak up at that point before you get to the end of the stay and in the review period. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Alex Brayshaw. Join me as I celebrate the positive impact of business and what drives the people behind it. It's a chance to hear from business leaders, emerging sectors and industry influencers about their unfinished business in just 25 minutes. Yeah. Those plus ones are important. I know we're, we've been working really hard getting this one right now live. And I think that on my roadmap for the next few months there, I put up a level up list is what I call it, which are basically ways that I can kind of ex- improve the experience a little bit at each of our short-term rental properties. You know, like one, ar- not an argument, but one side of the coin is that the reviews that we have are really, really, really good that what I'm doing is fine and that translates into a good review and a good experience. But, and then the flip side is, you know, do I want to add things on that are going to be a nuisance or a pain, you know, for incremental gain in a rating or in an experience? So I'm kind of weighing those two things. Like a s'more kit, for example, is a perfect plus one that in theory I should be doing at our place that has a fire pit. But in reality, guests kind of leave stuff behind anyway. Like they'll leave wrapped marshmallows and chocolate bars and I don't know, graham crackers, and the next one will will find their way to those things. So, and that seems to be working out fine. We have a four point nine six on that property. So, but the level up list is important. It's a really good point. You call it a plus one. You know, people need to do a little bit more, especially with the amount of competition that's out there with short term rentals. I mean, I think that is your cabin in a really competitive market. It's actually in a very random rural location where there's not really anything around it. I find it so interesting when I look at the data, at least on Airbnb, that there's so much interest in it, like views and hearts, and it's super well booked, more than I anticipated. I tried to create, and I think they have them in New Hampshire, uh, Getaway is the brand. So I was trying to create something similar to that where 
it's on five acres of land. So I bought the cabin and the county said I'm good to add um, tiny homes and tree houses and stuff. So I'm, I'm hoping to do that. And then there's a winery down the street and long-term goal. I'd love to buy that, put a wedding venue on it. And it, they would kind of all be one thing there. Wow. So what would that title be? The, the Vinter? Vintner? When you're a winemaker? Rory, what am I, what am I trying to I have to no mind? idea. <laughs> I have no idea either. That's, that's on my zone. But that's, I mean, look at that trajectory here where you um, you started off with an FHA loan for a multi in Everett, kind of an industrial community, and built up from there um, a network of people, um, a following of people online. And now we're discussing the possibility of buying a vineyard down the line um, to, su- to supplement um, the short-term rental business in another state. So that's that's a pretty impressive trajectory in just a few years. Yeah, I hope it ends up being that way because it'd be pretty fun. And I don't want to do the day-to-day operations of, of hosting weddings, but people seem to kind of pay whatever someone tells them when it comes to a wedding. Like $300 for a plated chicken? Sure. <laughs> so I my internet connection kind of screwed up there a little bit if uh, you're trying to talk to me, but if you weren't, I got it right. Look at that, Vintner. I was looking for the right word. Oh, nice. A person who makes wine or sells wine. So that's what you're going to become, Avery. That's great. Uh, we could probably go on forever uh, with your story. I love hearing this, you know, how you've gotten to where you are now and the future is so bright. I mean, like you still have decades worth of real estate investing ahead of you and, you know, lots of time with your family, old and, and young someday, perhaps. Why don't we move to our final couple of questions to get to know you a little bit better that we ask of all of our guests here on the podcast and then uh, you can mention how people can get a hold of you if they want to learn more from you and be starstruck, you know, by talking to you in person. So again, we asked these three questions of all of our guests on the podcast. The first of which is, if you could get on stage for half an hour and talk about any subject in the world with zero preparation, what would that be? Probably how to, well, I don't know if zero preparation counts all the years that I've done it. I was going to say juggle a soccer ball. That counts because mm-hmm. you're not you're not writing a speech is what I say. So just yeah. would you juggle for a half an hour? Could you do that? I mean, I would probably drop a few times, but teaching people how to do it would be very easy without preparation. Okay, that would be an interesting speech. Second question we have: Tell us something happened early in your life or career that impacts the way that you're working today. Probably the biggest thing that impacts how I do things today was being extremely cheap at first. Like I said, I grew up frugal, cheap household. I was way too cheap with my first property. Ended up buying things twice, fixing issues a year or two later that I should have just fixed correctly right away. So now I'm much more the opposite. I wouldn't say I'm lavish or extravagant with the things that I put in my properties, but thinking of it as very much long-term, durable, I just want to do this once. Mm-hmm. What's the phrase? Buy it nice or buy it twice? Mm-hmm. Did I just pick that up? Yeah. A follow-up to that. So, you know, my, my family is similar in that, you know, having all these properties and mortgages is kind of like eye-opening to them. And, you know, they they don't quite understand how it all works. Like, are, what are your parents like? Do they give you grief or are they worried at all? Or do they see what you've done and they say, okay, he's on the right path? So I think at first I mentioned that you could buy a home with three and a half percent down and you know, being from Canada, my parents thought that was very cool because loans are not as straightforward or easy and most are adjustable rate. So they thought that was cool. Definitely more leveraged than they would have ever been because they, whether they know who Dave Ramsey is or not, that's more the mindset of finances they prescribe to. 
um, as time has gone on, they've seen that it's been going really well. And they're like, oh, you should get your brother and sister to do this. It's going well. Push push them a little harder to, to get it done. But, All right. Good. Good. Mm-hmm. Open mind for it. Final question. Tell us something that you're listening to or watching or reading these days. Anything in the world. Right now, I'm reading a book called Deliberate Calm. It's about being a leader with a bit more calmness. So, for example, in the book, there's a sales leader who's just being yelled at by the CEO, and the sales leader yells at the sales office to sell more rather than thinking about how we can rally the troops and and get the team together. So a bit of a leadership book. A lot of the real estate and business books that I was reading a ton of when I started felt like they got a little bit repetitive. Um, so I still quite like nonfiction development books, but trying to read a, a little bit of a different topic. Yeah. That's interesting that you say they got repetitive. They, they do. What I learned in my sales career is that you have to say something 10 times for somebody to hear it. So I used to get frustrated as a sales manager when I'd roll something out and people wouldn't do it or understand it. And then another sales manager told me, he's like, you don't get it. Salespeople don't hear you. They have to hear it 10 times. You know, so I don't think it's a terrible thing to kind of read the same things over and over a lot of these books. But, you know, frankly, I get exhausted from them myself and I tend to listen to music a lot. You know, so like if I'm doing yard work, I'm listening to music. I'm not listening to like, you know, 75 podcasts and audiobooks. Every so often I put one on, but then I'll just be like, I don't even know what I heard. Like mm-hmm. it's just noise in the background, but like I can at least sing to songs. Yeah. Yeah. Very true. I also yeah. did start listening to another one, uh, Lex Fridman podcast. He just gets pretty interesting guests who are kind of polarizing sometimes from different political spectrums or just very interesting people. So his whole mindset is just curiosity. And he comes at everyone with a like empathetic and open mind. So I, I just like the questions he asks. And even if he ve- like vehemently disagrees with someone, he still asks good questions and they have a good conversation. Empathy is something we need a lot more of these days. Mm. Rory, any final questions we have for Avery? No, I just want to thank you for, for being here. We've been kind of following your, your trajectory. Um, you know, ever since we, the the first couple of meetups, and um, it's just very impressive. So I do encourage everybody who's listening or watching to this to to follow Avery and go deep into the library and get some DIY tips, or you could just get some good tips on uh, investing now. Yeah. Speaking of which, where's the library, Avery? How can people get a hold of you if they want to learn more about you? So Instagram, TikTok at underscore Avery Halbron, uh, and then the YouTube, just my name, Avery Halbron. Is it a bummer you have the underscore? Like, does somebody else have? I, yeah, someone took it on TikTok somehow. I don't know if I accidentally messed up and didn't see it, but I, it's not available. And then I figured you got to have the same um, username for both TikTok and Instagram. Yeah. And you know Avery is big time because there's all these fake accounts also that are there in your name. And every so often I'll see you post something like, I'm never going to ask you about crypto or whatever things you ask about. I don't, I don't know what those things are, but. Yeah, you've probably you've been victim of that, unfortunately, right? Yeah, it's a it's a huge problem on Instagram, especially with finance creators. I don't. The thing that I find the most interesting is the amount of people who send me screenshots of these conversations with the bots, and they think it's real. It seems so obviously fake to me, mm-hmm. um, but sometimes people fall for it a little bit. So if you want to uh, book a call with Avery and a bot appears on the screen afterward, I don't even know if that would happen. You know you're in the wrong spot. But if actually Avery pops on the screen and you're talking to this guy, like, you know, you're in the right spot and try not to get starstruck. He's very easy to talk to. 
And we appreciate your time here. So thanks so much, Avery, for for being on the Real Estate Law Podcast. You know, we've we've really enjoyed having you here. I've wanted to talk to you for quite some time. Yeah, thanks for having me, and I can't wait to listen. Yeah. And I should say uh, thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, if you watched the episode or listened to it, we'd appreciate it if you can give us a great five-star review because we love five-star reviews. We also answer all of the questions that are sent to us. If you want to be on the podcast, feel free to reach out to me, Jason, at nexthometitletown.com. And Rory, where can people find out about you? Uh, you can find me at my real estate brokerage, Next Home Titletown. That's nexthometitletown.com. Or my law practice, Urban Village Legal. That's urbanvillagelegal.com. All right. Well, my Apple Watch has told me it's time to stand up. So we should probably end this so I could stand up and apparently get another ring closed today. Avery, thanks again. Rory, thank you again. And thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. This has been the Real Estate Law Podcast. Because real estate is more than just pretty pictures. And law goes well beyond the paperwork and courtroom arguments. We're powered by Next Home Title Town. Greater Boston's progressive real estate brokerage. More at nexthometitletown.com. And Urban Village Legal, Massachusetts Real Estate Council, serving savvy property owners, lenders, and investors. More at urbanvillagelegal.com. Today's conversation was not legal advice, but we hope you found it entertaining and informative. Discover more at realestatelawpodcast.com. Thank you for listening.